Welcome to Untold with Nigel Balding, the international man of mystery. Over 55 minutes, Nigel chronicles his career at the forefront of luxury travel and tourism. Starting off as an advertising sales manager with the Far Eastern Review, Nigel set off to Hong Kong in his mid-20s, covering the full Asia region with advertisers across key cities. Early on in his career, Nigel discovered his element, which essentially was a love of travel and hospitality. Following a brief return to Blighty, Nigel joined Institutional Investor and very quickly became universally known for his role in heading up the industry gold standard, the Institutional Investor Top 100 Hotel List. Nigel launched in earnest World's Best Hotels in 2001, utilizing the Institutional Investor methodology and additionally went into publishing, publishing the Chic Collection, which starting with Mexico Chic, managed to grow as large as 30 different books. For the past number of years, Nigel has been based in the Dordogne in France and has launched Boulder Travel, which is complete with a very successful blog and some excellent interviews from some of the bolder characters of travel and hospitality. Enjoy. N Nigel, when speaking about um, your good self, one of the first cities that comes to mind is Hong Kong and your your illustrious career that that started back in Hong Kong. How did how did you end up there in the first place? Um, quite by chance, really, Gareth. I been working for the Daily Express newspaper on Fleet Street for four years, having um, having kicked off my sort of working career teaching English in Spain, purely because I wanted to go and watch Real Madrid play and uh, and learn Spanish. Um, and four years on Fleet Street, I thought I really can't do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to be uh, in an early grave if I carry on drinking at this rate with the printers and everybody else and the ad agencies. And there was a trade magazine in the advertising world called Campaign, which still is, I think. And I saw this job advertised in Hong Kong as, as regional advertising sales manager for the Far Eastern Economic Review. And thought, well, I'll just send off a CV and see what happens. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm meeting with them um, at, a, at a hotel in London <clears throat> and get offered the job. So that was... That was 1983. They flew me out for a week to give me a chance to sort of change my mind. I thought, am I going to change my mind on this? No way. So um, it's just one of those weird twists of fate, really, that um, at the age of, what, 25, 26, wasn't particularly pre-planned, but uh, was one of the greatest moves I ever made, really. So, yeah, it just happened by chance, really. I stayed with the review for, as it was called it the, the far east Negan review was the sort of the economist of asia at, at the time um a asia was a different place back in the early 80s you know you, you didn't have an open china uh japan was the regional power by a long long way and a lot of markets were um were, were quite closed and and obviously not the powerhouses they now are so Hong Kong was very much the um, the regional base. So as a result, we had advertisers from Korea, from Jakarta, Sri Lanka, you know, all over the the region, really. So it was a great job, and um, 
yeah, five years of, of, of flying around the region. But as that time went by, the most important or the most enjoyable part of it was getting to know the travel industry because as a, as a business, uh, economic, political, weekly magazine, um, a large number of our most important advertisers were obviously in the travel industry, you know, airlines on the one hand, like Singapore Airlines and Cathay, and then, um, you know, Mandarin Oriental and uh, in the old days, Regent, which of course sort of, sort of no longer exists, um, but a lot of, you know, great hotels in the region. So I, in that time became uh, quite uh, connected with the travel world, yeah. And was it, was it a fairly tough advertising market? Did you have to really, you know, use your charm and sales skills or, or was it something that was a bit like pushing a, against an open door in that economic backdrop? No, nothing's ever easy. I mean, we were the sort of leading, we were the market leader as a publication, I, I, I would say. And we were competing against the Asian Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, Business Week, uh, Asia Week. So it was a congested market, which was really only a print market. You can imagine, you know, the mid eighties, there was no real uh, diversity of TV mm -hmm. to watch. Um, CNN was sort of a fledgling idea. Um, obviously no, no social media or any, anything digital. So everything was in print. So it was a question of convincing advertisers that if you were in a so-called regional magazine, you were reaching the elite international business traveler. Yes. Um, so yeah, uh, very competitive with Wall Street Journal, Business Week, all those guys I mentioned. Um, and quite a few of them are no longer around, you know, in, in, in those years, in the eighties, Hong Kong did the, um, the deal with China to, um, to, um, to put in place the post 97 arrangements for better or for worse. Um, and China gradually began to open up. And um, so it's great fun and, and staying in some great hotels. So that was a lot of fun. Excellent. And then you moved over to Institutional Investor, which is, is still going today and it's esteemed, esteemed and extremely well, well regarded. Was that the <clears throat> capital, capital Cities era? Uh, just about what, what happened actually there was a brief interim period um, we went back to the UK and actually I went to work for Haymarket the publishers of campaign for okay. a short while to help them with their international business portfolio they had things like management today and uh, a very if you know Haymarket it's a huge publishing company owned by Michael Hazeltine who's a Welshman uh, yes indeed so um, but a tough place and um, I knew Institutional Investor a little bit and they knew me and then they offered me a position to go back to Asia to, to run their business in Asia Pacific. So within a year of, of, of moving back to Hong Kong, sorry, of, of leaving Hong Kong, I found myself back there. Great. And how did the link then come from, obviously Institutional Investor is very well known as a magazine, uh, for running events how did the the that link with travel come about and because obviously the the awards list and and what ultimately became your specialist areas of expertise it, it wasn't probably a natural core part of the business originally no um 
very astute. Yeah, it was even when I was in Hong Kong with the Far East Economic Review, I always remember the annual announcement of the Institutional Investor World's Best Hotels Award. Um, so I, jo I joined them just after, as you say, they'd been bought by Capital Cities ABC. Um, so the owner, Gil Kaplan, had sold out very successfully, <clears throat> but was staying on. Um, what he had done when he started the magazine in the in the late 70s, he'd realized pretty quickly that um, that bankers, fund managers, stockbrokers back in those days were extremely important clients for luxury hotels. And um, in addition to publishing the magazine, he um, had launched a very successful meetings and conference division on the back of the um, the subscription base because institutional investor was was mainly by subscription if you qualified you received a free copy and if you didn't it cost you 500 dollars a year so it was quite a ring-fenced and valuable database that <clears throat> was 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 um ideally positioned to then meet up in different parts of the world um to discuss different aspects of finance and one of those conferences was being held in the um, in Cannes, funnily enough, coincidentally enough, at the uh, Martinez. <clears throat> and of course, bankers, mainly blokes back in those days, mm -hmm. um, when they've finished talking about money, the next thing they turn to talking about is generally travel. Mm -hmm. um, they talk about the best restaurants, the best bars, best hotels. Because in those days, yeah, as you mentioned before, with uh, uh, a chap, you know, Mike Hope, business trips were three or four weeks long, you know. And if you were a, a New York banker and you were going to Asia, well, yeah, you did the whole swing. You know, you started in Tokyo, ended up in Jakarta. So um, he, he's sitting at this table, the head table at the conference, there's 120 people there having dinner. And he sort of said to the folks on the table, well, you know, just for a bit of fun, let's just write down on the back of a napkin our top 10 favorite hotels and, you know, see what the result is. And everyone thought, well, that, that was great fun. And so we thought, okay, well, let's get the entire room to do it. So um, stood up and said, look, can everybody here, 120 people write down their, you know, number one to number 10 favorite hotels. We'll um, add them up overnight and tomorrow morning and we'll announce the winner at lunchtime tomorrow. So huge excitement. <clears throat> Everyone duly scribbled on the back of their, well, it probably wasn't paper serviettes, was it really? But um, anyway, scribbled down their, their favorite hotels, handed them in and the following lunchtime, having added up all the results, um, he stood up and, and read out the top 10 and, um, there were some famous names in there, some of whom have been sort of perennially there, you know, Shangri-La, Singapore, mm -hmm. uh, Rovner House was one of them, the Deberg in, in Geneva, the Ritz in Madrid, a lot of old, you know, classic hotels, but number one by a long way was, as it was then, the Oriental Bangkok. And um, you sort of thought, well, how does that work? Because Bangkok, you know, back then wasn't really an international financial center on the same scale as New York or Tokyo or London, but it just showed that these are mainly American bankers on their swing through Asia. They made sure they had a Friday afternoon meeting at the uh, in Bangkok somewhere. Yes. So 
So that was the first survey, I think 79, 1980, more or less. And um, he got back to New York and thought, well, I guess if these people are the same people that read the magazine and they loved it, let's just print it in the magazine, you know, in the September issue or whatever, on page, you know, 325 in the days when magazines had 350 pages. And it was, it was picked up immediately globally as being, um, you know, the, the, the gold standard really, because, yes. because bankers were important people back then for hotels. So that, that's how it started. And the methodology that you described, the storytelling element to it, that, that adds a lot of, a lot of value, right? Because you can see that it's not, not being influenced by any other metric solely by people voting independently as to what they think the best best hotels were and you can't tell them that they're wrong but it's based on their own personal preference yeah yeah well exactly that that was one of the key reasons why the survey was immediately or as we say these days immediately went viral because there was a uh, an opinion certainly amongst the hoteliers that Institutional Investor was, you know, as a financial magazine, it's not a travel publication. Um, back in those days, it carried hardly any travel advertising. Mm -hmm. So the international luxury hotel industry thought, well, that's that's you know that that's going to be pretty neutral and um, unbiased, you mm -hmm. know, because these are an important group of people. There's no real editorial or advertising bias in the um in the magazine um and it, it was a predominantly u.s banker based survey so um and back then remember you know you didn't have common ass traveler i mm -hmm. don't think you had travel and leisure i don't I, I don't think there were many global travel magazines you, you had things like vogue and um gq but they, they weren't you know they weren't bothered about travel, really. Yes. So, um, so II or Institutional Investor, its full name, sort of found itself in this remarkable position of of of, of having the world's best hotel survey. And it started off with ten people, uh, ten hotels rather, and one hundred and twenty uh, voters, and they pretty much stuck with the same number of voters over time, um, it increased to 100 uh, in terms of the hotels that were ranked. Um, but the number of voters, funny enough, didn't really actually change over the years. And did it, did it expand to a, a top 100 at some point? Well, exactly that. You know, I, I joined them, went back to Asia and thought, hang on, you know, there's, there's a real... Um, that there's a missing opportunity here. You know, the magazine should be carrying more luxury hotel advertising, if only to focus on influencing these um, these these this small group of people that vote. Um, so I very uh, we we have, I got back to Hong Kong back in those days. We uh, we thought the financial center of Asia was Tokyo, so within a year had moved to Tokyo to open up an office in in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, and then bizarrely from there spent, uh, yeah, another few years traveling from Japan to visit 
banks and luxury hotels around Asia? Because again, slightly before your time, you were probably at university or whatever back then, Gareth, but there, there was um, all of the great, I won't say all of the great hotels, but <clears throat> a huge proportion of the great hotels in the world were in Asia. Yes. You know, they had cracked the, um, you know, the service values, the, the, the height of luxury, because they could probably afford to, you know, um, a hotel in New York <clears throat> or Paris couldn't possibly match the service levels of a hotel in Singapore or Bangkok or even Hong Kong. So, um, so yeah, and of course, a lot of these hotels in Asia back then were run by Swiss, French, Germans, um, who were obviously brought out as being legendary hoteliers from legendary hotel schools. Yes. Um, so yeah, so I managed to crank up the amount of advertising we had on the magazine, and then we started the book in, uh, in 1993. I'll show it to you. The world's best hotels, there we are. Actually, the size of a coffee table. It's Excellent, and that, so that was edition number one. Sorry, what was the year, Nigel? Came out in 1993. 1993 edition one. Yeah, yeah. And um, some remarkable pictures in there of <clears throat> one chap on his mobile phone. You can imagine the size of a mobile phone in 1993. It was yeah. about the size of that book basically but the chapter was entitled the dawn of the mobile office and um you know there he was with a massive phone and a massive computer and uh it was 1993 and and had a great um tenure also world best hotels it, it was obviously the the business you were most involved in until not not so long ago so what was the yeah. link? Did, did it always continue then to have the link with II, or was it a separate publication and an endorsement? Or how, how did the two link together in the latter stages? Um, well, it was always <clears throat> connected with the survey, but what I did was you know register the name the world's best hotels.com. Mm -hmm. uh, and decided I, I left institutional investor in 98 when Euromoney bought institutional investor and mm -hmm. you know quite a lot of us thought nah don't really fancy this and I went off to Singapore to start my own travel publishing business with a, a French partner in uh, in 98 and um, we were doing different books but and I was still involved with institutional investor but I thought that they should really start the book again we hadn't done the book mm -hmm. Um, for quite a while because it was a complicated and costly project to do in the days before PDFs and before mm -hmm. email was commonly used. It was expensive to courier film and transparencies around the world. <clears throat> so it was a uh, didn't make any sense. But by 2001, the economics were of, of producing a book were very different uh, and more favorable. So I went back to institutional investor, to the publisher. I said, look, you know, let, let's strike a deal to um, to do this book again, because I, I sense that hotels, you know, really quite like it and let, let's structure it so that it makes business sense for us. So we agreed on the deal um, in, in a wine bar in London. He went to the airport. I went to the um, 
RAC business center uh, and looked at the TV screens to see the science fiction movie of two planes going into the Twin Towers in um, New York. So it was 9-11, 2001, was the day that we agreed to restart the whole world's best hotels thing. So uh, auspicious date, if ever there was one. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't a great time, as you can imagine, to be talking to any hotelier about a, uh, um, you know, a, a book project. But you know, we 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 got it done, and um, and it, it it got bigger and bigger and bigger, really, for um for about ten years. Um, uh, but then you know, I say ten years. Even after two thousand eight, it was difficult because bankers, after the global financial crash in two thousand eight, sort of didn't stop traveling but their expenses came under slightly greater review um so they were no longer the uh the valuable clients to the Mandarin oriental or or to the shangri-la as they once were shall i put it that way so that the, the sands were shifting um, our baines oxley and other regulations that really put a kibosh to the golden old days really did didn't it yeah so suddenly the um the, the the world of luxury hotels became more leisure it wasn't just business travelers that could afford to stay there um at plus you had a lot of new emerging markets around the world you know russia china india brazil etc uh, and yeah the the market for luxury hotels became more high-end luxury travel uh, leisure travelers so we, we kept the book going until about 2012. I think it was the last one, 2012, 2013. And, um, you know, that was it, sadly. Yeah. And you, you're also very well known for the Chic Collection, the, the books that you produced also on varying destinations and, and part of the world. How large did these actually get? How did you end up with, with what sort of number of Chic Collection books did you <laughs> end up getting? Because I remember there even being a, a Cambodia edition. Yeah, we did Indochina chic. Yeah, uh, as you'll remember, the first one was Mexico chic, which we started on in about two thousand two, um, uh, and uh, that was through an introduction to the Mexico, um, the director of the Mexico Tourism Board in London, who said, you know, we'd like to portray the new Mexico. We like to tell the world about these great small boutique hotels that we have. It's not all Cancun and sombreros and tequila. So um, I said, well, okay. I, and, and if you remember about that time, there was a book series called Hip Hotels that have been hugely successful. Um, Herbert uh, Itma. exactly. Um, and um, that had taken the travel world or the, the the consumer end of the travel world by storm because here was a book that that beautifully photographed the coolest hotels on the planet uh, so we thought mm, yeah maybe there's scope for something a little bit more country specific here um, and at the same time Mr and Mrs Smith launch which you'd be familiar with as well um, so we thought if we focus on you know country by country um, it'll be a more manageable thing to produce. So yeah, we started with Mexico Chic. It took a good 18 months of, um, uh, of, of me schlepping around Mexico to a uh, tough job, I know, but um, 
seeing as many hotels as I possibly could with as many introductions as I, as I could possibly get via the tourism board and a couple of uh, travel shows, the legendary, um, the legendary Acapulco uh, annual um, travel show, uh, Tianguis, which I went to for many years, was brilliant. And most of the deals were struck at, at 3 a.m. in the morning on the dance floor of a club called Baby O um, <laughs> in, in Acapulco. Um, but we, yeah, we did, we did Mexico chic and we thought, okay, now what? That was pretty good. Um, hotels paid a fee to be featured. Um, and then we sold copies in bookshops and we sold the rights to different language publishers. Um, so it, it, it worked okay as a business model. And then we did Bali chic, South Africa chic, Greece chic. In, yeah. So we, in the end, we did about 38 editions. Wow. Uh, and most of them in, 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 in different languages, you know, ranging from, you know, French, German, Italian, Portuguese, Dutch. Uh, so it was, um, it, it was a timely project through the, um, again, through the noughties. Um, great, great, great fun, you know, and, and it was great to, whilst doing the world's best hotels on the one hand, which was, mainly the great uh mainly corporate style hotels you know traditional luxurious city-based hotels on the other hand the sheet collection was you know lovely places on beaches in sri lanka safari lodges in south africa and you know three or four bedroom hotels in italy so it was a nice balance um at a, at a time when the, the the travel world was sort of getting used to the boutique hotel experience as well as being accustomed to the sort of the traditional luxurious more um yeah i say more old-fashioned more classical type mm -hmm. of hotel and so then it was great. and then the um we we crossed over for about six months in the emirates when you just moved into the tower by frankie's italian and the uh yeah. trade yeah. mai tai lounge i, I think that that was a, a part of a process of you actually selling the company and, and moving on over a space of time? Yeah, well, again, the challenge was digital. Um, this was whatever, 2012. We, we'd just done our last book in the Chic collection, Catalonia Chic. But you know, a book was taking a year to do, you know, by the time you, from the day that you started it to the day you actually got it into bookshops, you know, 12 months is a <laughs> Is a ridiculous amount of time, especially, you know, given the sort of the the the, the sense of time that we we have now. So I thought, well, the only way we can do this really is to somehow go digital, take the whole thing online, and um, you know, try and develop either a booking engine, uh, or, or some sort of way of having a reservation system. Mm -hmm. You know, Booking.com, Expedia were just sort of kicking off around about, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and everyone was probably juggling with the same sort of, uh, even hotels were thinking, you know, what do we do in terms of, you know, reservation technology? So to be able to understand that as a traditional uh, travel person and a book publisher is almost impossible. You know, you had all these people saying, oh, try this, uh, you know, Synexis or this or that or whatever. 
And on my way to Hong Kong to speak to different investors, I stopped off in Dubai as I normally did back then. And um, yeah, got speaking to JA and uh, uh, Jebel Ali Hotels and Resorts owned by Dutco. Um, and they had an interest in the sheet collection mm-hmm. and knew more about reservation technology than I did, for sure. You know, so I had something which which appealed to them. They had the know-how in um, you know how a hotel worked and how reservation systems worked. But you know things were moving pretty quickly on all fronts with booking technology back then, um, and to to assemble what would have been five or six hundred hotels into the same system, well. You know better than me, Gareth. That that's 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 pretty difficult to do, especially if all these small hotels are all running on different systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the bigger hotels would be operating Synexus for the most part, um, but it was a minefield, and it soon became obvious that whatever you spent on this was not going to be enough because even if you spent money on the correct form of technology you've then got to drive the huge numbers of, you know, visitors you need to your site just to get 1% conversion rate, you know. Well, Expedia and, Expedia and Booking paid combined 9 billion in advertising costs last year. So it's, really? uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. You could spend as much as you like. So that's what you're up against, isn't it? You know, <laughs> um, competing with the likes of small luxury hotels, Mm-hmm. Relay Chateau, leading hotels in the world. You know, a, 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 that's to name the big three. Plus, you had Prefers uh, and still do. So, quite a lot of hotel um, affiliation programs. Um, so, it, it became very clear very quickly that um, 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars was who knew? You know, it was like a bottomless pit, really. Um, so the, the, the two brands are still sitting there, um, in Dubai, um, and are not doing very much because it, it, yeah, it's, it's a sort of, um, a tough situation to know exactly, you know, what to do with them. Absolutely. So on the point of the move to digital, obviously with advertising, there's been a huge move to Google, Facebook, and, uh, an advertising spend that's seen a total reduction in the printed coffee table book, the example that you showed just now. Do you think there will ever be a point in the future where it could be feasibly a a route people could take again or the costs versus returns would just make it unsustainable? Um, Books will will never go away, ever. Um, I just think that there is probably it hasn't gone full circle but there's probably space in the market for a you know for very very good travel books mm-hmm. again now um probably for all the different reasons that we we didn't think it, it, it's it's more because people want in that glut or that jungle of information that we have out there they want somebody to say right here's 50 hotels that are great for you Yes. Or a hundred, you know. We we're we're now all looking for for somebody on whatever level of media you use 
to tell you or to advise you, here's what's right for you. Because you know, there's almost too, inf too much information out there, isn't there, to a degree. And we need a trusted source to sort of come up with a list of, of uh, whether it's hotels or whatever it is you're into, that, that, that they think are right for you. So yeah, there are new magazines being launched. And you know, whenever I do go into a bookshop, which isn't too often around here in, in Southwest France, but I think they're, I think they're alive and well, but um, you just got to be a little bit creative about what you're going to produce and what you're going to publish. So if you were a marketing director in Hong Kong opening a property today, assume a good proportion of your budget's gone towards shorter term performance marketing on online. Yeah. Outside, outside of that, where else do you think are opportunities to invest budget or areas that may be overlooked or underspent in? Um, well, I, I thought about this because you kindly suggested this as a topic. And um, in my years of being associated with Hong Kong, um, two hotels, luxury hotels that have opened, that have raised the bar, one was the Regent back in 1981, 82, when um, Bob Burns and a cohort of legendary hoteliers came up with this wonderful new clean hotel brand. And the Regent went straight into the institutional investor top 100 at number two. Wow. Even though it's Kowloon side and no bankers used to say on Kowloon side. And the other hotel that really raised the bar when it opened, I'd say 10 years ago, is the Upper House. Um, fantastic with, property. Fantastic property. And what they did was, was pretty clever. Obviously, when the Regent opened, it did full page ads in the Review and Time and Newsweek, because that's all you could do back in those days, right? Um, you know, you did very cool, glossy, but high wastage print advertising. Uh, what Brian Williams did very, very well when he opened the upper house was he got as many people as possible to come and stay, mm -hmm. you know? Now this was probably, i say more, I think it was about 10 years ago before the word influencers became popular, <laughs> even yeah. before blogging blogged, you know, before bloggers blogged. Um, so if I was to do the same again in Hong, if I was to open up a hotel, I, I'd sort of go down that you know, Brian Williams upper house route um, of getting as many influential people in through the doors in your very, very early, you know, soft opening <clears throat> days. But obviously these days, you've got to get the right bloggers, the right influencers as well. Um, and if you get those, right, those, those people, then, you know, the, the, the spin-off effects marketing wise is going to be huge. Um, and the other thing that I think hotels are, are sort of getting better at these days is, is, is storytelling, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it used to be, and again, going back to the old days of the world's best, a hotel was a hotel. <clears throat> you stayed there. If you were in Bangkok or Jakarta, you probably ate there, drank there, you know. And apart from your meetings, and you have most of those in the hotel as you could possibly arrange, you didn't really leave the hotel. Mm -hmm. These days, I think even hoteliers realize that, you know, the hotel is, is really just a base, you yes. know. Um, 
so again, what the Abbey House did well was, was to say, okay, well, here's the area that we're in because remarkably, even though it's only about 10 minutes walk from central, you know what Hong Kong's like, people think, oh, that's, that's out in the boondocks. They had to sort of kind of promote the area. Yes. And get people to understand that actually, you know, downstairs or over the road, there's one chai or whatever there might be. Um, so hotels have sort of had to get better at um, creating more of a story around their hotels and to realize that, yeah, uh, shock horror, the guest actually walks out the door during the day and may not come back till later at night. So you've got to sort of try and keep them coming in. Plus, of course, what the upper house did exceptionally well was they got loads of non-hotel guests into that hotel because the restaurant was good, affordable, great scene in the bar. So um, again, hotels have got to realize that uh, they can be, you know, they, they can compete with local bars and restaurants as well. So I think the, yeah. the, the remarkable thing about seeing an experience in the upper house, having been in Dubai, was that it was originally designed to be an apartment building. Now, there yeah. are umpteen, yeah. umpteen examples of Dubai where the owner has at the last minute changed his mind and not wanted a condo building and wanted a hotel and vice versa. And it's yeah. always led to operational challenges, issues, no, no linen shoot, another, not, not enough lifts for service staff and so on. But Upper House just said, okay, it's going to be a residential experience like no other. So you've got, yeah. the but, you've got the butler, you've got the cookies and the warm milk, the constant handwritten notes. As you say, yes, it was an old service apartment owned by Swires. Uh, and it's been, a, it's been a huge success. But, and so has the whole house brand. You know, as you know, they've expanded around Asia, mainly China. But, um, you know, at least we've now seen a sort of a marriage of, um, of cool hotels with more traditional hotels because the... Um, the first time that happened in the um, early 90s, you know, with, with the advent of the Schrager properties in New York. I mean, it just sort of didn't work. They were great fun, but you couldn't possibly stay in there on a business trip. Um, and um, you couldn't bring your cat to swing it around the room if you're on a leisure trip either. So it was, you know, but now they've got that balance right. It's pretty good. Yeah, and Dean Winter celebrated 12 years with uh, the house group, uh, I think beginning of last week. But as you said, yeah. the op opposite house and the temple house, the, they're all great places in any city to go for a drink, a meal, or if you're fortunate enough to stay, then they're really exceptional properties. Yeah, yeah. No, very true. And, you know, all those guys had Mandarin Oriental backgrounds, you know. So they, they, they knew how to operate um, and create a luxury property, but to do it in a in a in a in a in a in a, in a slightly less formal way, shall we say? You know, um, other other brands like Hyatt have gone on and done their own upper house thing, like you know, with the Andaz concept, mm -hmm. for example, which I think um, I think Mandarin might well have done, should have done themselves, but probably are thinking they're lucky stars, they didn't do it in the current environment, right? Yeah. You talked a, a little earlier about the, the one of the reasons for the Institutional Investor Awards being so successful was that it was from outside the travel industry. What What's notable now with LinkedIn and with everyone sat at home with social media 
is that from September onwards, it's just a complete plethora of people receiving awards and it, it doesn't look like slowing down because co constantly there are awards that are being announced and obviously up uploaded onto LinkedIn because everyone's very proud of, of what they've achieved. In, in 2020, are there any that, that you would stand out or be particularly notable to you as to, to try, and, try and secure or win? Well, as you know, from first-hand experience, Gareth, if you're, if you're not the first mover with an institutional investor survey 40-something uh, years ago, your next best bet is to get all the Miss World contestants along. <laughs> and uh, as we went <laughs> to at Grosvenor House with the, what is it, World Travel Awards? Yeah, that's right. Um, which obviously is a great night for all involved. And, um, but... Yeah, those awards obviously not seen as being too impartial, if I might say so. Um, yeah, there, there, are, there are too many of them, aren't there, really? It, it, it's, one gets a lot of emails saying, please vote for us if you've stayed with us, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think the only thing that really stands out in my mind is really the Condé Nast Traveller mm -hmm. survey, whether, whether you're a UK or US reader. Yeah. Um, and, and also travel and leisure. Um, you know, th those are respectable travel magazines in, in our world, uh, yeah. and they, they, they've stood the test of time. Um, they, 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 they rather cleverly break it out into lots of different categories in different countries, which, which I think is, is appropriate these days. Again, the old Institutional Investor Survey was, you know, financial center properties, and they were comparing apples with apples. Um, but yeah, beyond those two great magazines, I, I can't think there's really anything out there. But as you say, on social media, all you read is, you know, incredibly humbled and honoured to be blah, 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 <laughs> in yet another ranking of, of some sort. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a fairly old marketing ruse, isn't it, really? And um, well, I, I won't... Well, won't hide the fact we did well out of an institutional investor in, in, a, in a rather thinner market. But now, it, yeah, it's a little bit intense. Well, you took it from 10 to 100, but you, you should have thought a bit, bit bigger because this year there'll be 3,300 winners of World Travel Awards. Really? Now, yeah, that's a pretty clever business approach to it, I suppose, isn't it? You could say there's a little bit of dilution of the brand, but... Um, well, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what the results are of all of these things this year and, and next, really, because a lot of hotels that I've dealt with over the years are, are shut. Yes. You know, running at, you know, single-digit occupancy. So, um, difficult to know, really, how we're going to get through this. In, in the UK, there was a very famous series called A, a Year in Provence, which, unfortunately, I haven't haven't seen, but I saw the movie A Good Year with Russell Crowe, who's a very wealthy banker and then moved to France to, to do up a house. So yeah. that's, that's how I imagine your life down there in the Dordogne. So how, how does a typical week look for you? Well, as you say, A Year of Provence was a great book and I think started with the fabled classic line, it started with lunch. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is great, but when you when you actually live here, it's uh, 
it's it's a long way from the truth, really. Although I think you, you know, you start certainly the first year you do a lot of that because mm -hmm. who wouldn't? France is uh, it's a wonderful country, um, great place for lunch, but it's an it's an interesting country. It's not um, it's not an easy place. You know, I've lived in Japan, Hong Kong, Dubai. This is the toughest place, mm -hmm. um, and yet it's only you know as a Brit. 26 miles from Dover, uh, but everything about it is is completely different, not helped by obviously Brexit and obviously not helped by current confinement. Um, it's not a it's not a country you would come to to start a business, sadly, which, um, you know, as you and I know, I mean, as as having lived in Asia and, and the Middle East, which are sort of can do countries can, can do regions where the first answer to any question is yes, <laughs> and then they figure it out. Here, the first answer to any question is no. <laughs> and then, you, and then you, you work from there. So no matter how much money you might wanna spend on, on anything here, a new kitchen or a, a, a Rolls Royce or whatever, it, it, it's always no. Mm -hmm. And then you, you go from there. So, so it's, 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 it's obviously a country a lot of people come to to sort of kick back a bit. Um, and it's a little known fact that there are more French living in Britain than there are Brits living in France. Okay. Um, but the reason for that is that any Frenchman or French lady who wants to start a business has, uh, until next year, I guess, found it a lot easier to go and live in the UK and, and start a business than to do it in France. Um, and obviously the, the, the Brits are coming here at the other end of the uh, pay grade and sort of checking out and going into semi-retirement. No, I'm still working and blogging and developing my uh, Boulder travel uh, brands. And um, one of the reasons we came here was because yeah, cheap flights on Ryanair from Bergerac to London every day for 10 euros. Um, sadly, at the moment, there aren't any. So um, it's a bit tricky. But no, it's, it's a brilliant country, and I, and I never thought I'd say this, but um, yeah, the UK really is sort of not part of Europe, and I can understand Brexit. This is, you know, the UK is more US-leaning in lots of ways, mentality, commercially, and um, yeah, the French, yeah, it, it's, still, it's still about lunch, you know, so... Um, well, your blogs blogs are fantastic. I always read them thoroughly, and uh, you always stay in the, the very best hotels, so they're enjoyable reading. And and also, when I invited you and in to to do a pod, I hadn't realised you already had a pod. So I've I've actually stolen some of your format at the end. So I'm going to ask you the question that you've asked your esteemed yeah. guests. So you're coming out of COVID. Which hotel are you going to stay at? Which meal are you going to go dine? And I know you're a huge golf fan. So where would be your, your bucket list golf course if you were able to go tomorrow? Well, um, with one thing and another, it's been two years since being in Asia. And um, I would still go back to the hotel that was number one in the Institutional Investor Survey for the first 12 years every year. And that was the Oriental Bangkok. And... Um, I would quite happily um, go back there and 
quarantined for two weeks without being able to leave the Oriental Bangkok. Um, it wouldn't be a good trip. <laughs> yeah, the odd trip on the boat, sit by the pool, um, have a great room overlooking the Chow Praia River, just watching the world go by. Um, great hotel. I mean, a lot of hoteliers use that sort of rather um, misappropriate phrase of welcome home. Uh, but the Oriental's the one hotel in the world that can say that, you know, if you're lucky enough to have stayed there. And it, it's one of these places where not once, but when you go back, you know, the second, third, fourth time, that's when it really kicks in because they know they know who you are, for better or for worse. They know what, um, you know, how you like your room to be. And I think they lose, or they used to lose literally no staff a year. Very, very, very small turnover. So brilliant well, hotel. I was fortunate enough to honeymoon there because you kindly got us a, a very good rate. However, I spent an absolute fortune for spa treatments because the general manager had been so so kind as to extend a complimentary spa treatment for uh, Debs. However, yeah. the topping up of the free 30 minutes, the two hours or whatever cost a, a lot of money, but a, a, a once in a lifetime hotel experience. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, and then, um, Gareth, we'd have to have lunch, talking of France, we'd have to have lunch in France, really. And um, the last hotel that, um, one of the last hotels I went to before COVID kicked in, is the great Hotel du Cap Eden Rock in the, uh, on the Cap d'Antibes, part of the Opca collection. And, um, they very kindly invited us down to do some, you know, some writing and some videoing and um, to, to, to try the place out. And uh, yeah, having lunch there in what is the Eden Rock part of it, which is down by the water, uh, you look out across the bay towards Cannes and all you can see is the, the Russian oligarchal naval fleet uh, in front of you. Um, and incredible food, incredible wine, incredible service, lovely people. One of the reasons is I think about that hotel is that it, it's one of these seasonal properties that closes down over the winter because it's, you know, it's a coastal summer resort. Uh, and most of the staff either go up to the Opca collection property at La Pogie in Courchevel, mm -hmm. or they choose to stay in the hotel over the winter and help to paint, decorate, you know, fix the pool, you know, and they all stay. And uh, well, they all stay on as employees over the years and um, creates a real sense of um, camaraderie. But um, yeah, during the Cannes Film Festival, um, e e our room was, you know, on a regular evening, five, a regular night, whatever, 5,000 euros a night. Don't think you'd get it for that during the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. Um, but um, brilliant place. So I would suggest if anyone can get there, they at some point in their lives, even if they go there for lunch, um, you know, and don't stay there, brilliant place. But they would be closed during ILTM, would they? They're closed during ILTM, sadly. They opened, I think they, they normally have an Opca collection event there just for one night, um, but the hotel isn't open. Um, 
I have to check that. They might actually open it during ILTM. That's a good point. I know they have a couple of events there, but whether you can actually stay there or not during ILTM, I don't know. But um, if they do, Gareth, then maybe we should be uh, staying there next December for ILTM 2021. Well, well, you'll be there as a guest at the event, but in the event that it's open, I'll, I'll buy you lunch because I certainly certainly wouldn't be invite, invited to the party. But uh, the last one, golf. Where, where are you going to go golfing? Uh, well, there's only one place, really, for me, uh, if, if it's on the bucket list, and that is, of course, St Andrews in Scotland. Yeah. Um, about 18 years ago, a, uh, a group of friends and I walked across... Scotland from Oban to St Andrews, 130 something miles in four days, which uh, if you do the maths will tell you that uh, it was completely stupid. Um, I hadn't realised you walked. I've sponsored your cycles a good few times. I didn't realise you did long walks as well. They're getting shorter, I can assure you. That was the, <laughs> that was the longest. That was about 35 miles a day, which was which was stupid, but um, a good hotel friend of mine, Jonathan Stapleton, who's actually now at the Royal Crescent in Bath, was the GM at the Old Course Hotel at St Andrews. Um, and um, I, I had some room nights there, which I had to use up. And, uh, and he said, oh, you know, you must have dinner. We'll lay on a, you know, a, a, a dinner for you when you arrive. I said, well, you do, do you really want sort of six smelly, blokes who've walked across Scotland going anywhere near your very posh dining room. No, it'd be fine, be fine, be fine. And of course we turned up. Uh, it, it, we really only had the clothes we were walking in. And the lovely French maitre d' said, oh yes, Mr. Bonnier, we've been expecting you. And um, I, I looked into the restaurant, could see that everybody was aghast, but they had fenced off literally with in advance of current social distancing rules, an area that was nowhere near any other guest in the, uh, in the restaurant. Um, big night, but anyway, the following day, we're due to play golf, and um, a friend of mine who actually lives some of the year in St Andrews called me up at seven o'clock or 6.30 a.m. and said, Nigel, open your windows and look at that. Open your curtains. I looked out and it was as if a green carpet had been laid absolutely pristinely, you know, between the hotel and the sea and the old clubhouse. And um, so, yeah, had quite a few lovely times playing golf for St Andrews and uh, it, it's it's God's own, isn't it, really? Just a delight. So Fantastic. looking forward to going back there. Excellent. So to recap, you're, you're, uh, you're in maybe Bangkok. Maybe after Cannes. Yeah, so you're in Bangkok, you're in Cannes. Oh, sorry, just run down the road from Cannes. And then you're playing golf up in St. Andrews. So uh, let's hope yeah. COVID, COVID is solved quickly so you can do all three of those in the 2021. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope that all those places are open and um, that we can all afford to do that as well, because that's not going to be easy either, is it? But um, it'll come back. Keep the faith. Yeah, well, Nigel, thanks ever so much for your value time. It's always great speaking with you. And uh, You've had an absolutely fascinating and illuminating career, which has allowed you to do lots of advertising, but obviously to, to your main passion, travel and international hotels and restaurants. So uh, thanks so much for sharing all your wisdom, insights and experience. Thanks, Gareth. It's been great talking to you. It always is. Great pleasure to see you. So see you in 2021. <laughs>